Nick Vins here. My guest on The Chattering Hour, Daniel Roebuck, has an impressive list of genre titles to his name, plus nearly 300 film and TV credits in a career spanning almost 40 years. We talk about his love of horror films, how it scared him many years ago, working with genre directors Don Coscarelli and Rob Zombie, his breakout role in River's Edge, acting with Keanu Reeves and Dennis Hopper, and we talk about much, much more in this special extended edition of The Chattering Hour, right after this. And we're back with special guest Daniel Roebuck. Daniel's impressive career includes smash hit films such as The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, U.S. Marshals, Final Destination, and on TV he's appeared in Matlock, Nash Bridges, and The Man in the High Castle. He's also a Rob Zombie alumni, appearing in Zombies Halloween's 1 and 2, 3 from Hell, The Devil's Rejects, and 31. And recently he's added writer, producer, and director to his resume. Cool. All right, Daniel, thank you so very much indeed for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. I can't believe I'm talking to you. You're happy you're talking to me. I'm, you're, you scared the crap out of me, dude. It's crazy. Well, but when would you, you saw it, presumably, you saw Hellraiser, presumably, yeah, whenever. So about 30 yeah, odd years ago. If I'm guessing right, am I right about that? I was in LA, so 35, maybe 34 years ago. Yeah. Do you remember when you. Yeah, I, 33, you it's 87. Yeah, it's 33. So oh, it, it came out in 87. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was yeah. Definitely, definitely here for all that. Yeah. Right. Right, 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 right. Well, well, thank you. I, I it always sounds weird when people tell me this. Scared the crap out of me. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, <this is> <laughs> well, actually, kind of brings me to one of my first questions. Actually, you are. Let's talk about the genre in general. You are a big sci-fi and horror fan. Absolutely. Do you remember the earliest films that you watched oh. in the in the genre? I mean, in the genre, uh, it would be classic Universal monsters. That's kind of been my my go to for all these years. I love classic Universal monsters. I would say uh, first memories are Frankenstein. First movie that really struck me as um, special was Bride of Frankenstein, because uh, if you watch Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Karloff by that point is given the opportunity to communicate. Uh, and he was such a, a fantastic actor to communicate through the makeup and through what the character was doing physically, but still having an emotional life that that wasn't lost on me. So Creature from the Black Lagoon, those are really the Universal Studios horror films as they, you know, it's funny for us, you know, it didn't you didn't know that it was made 30 years earlier, you know. From, but you just watched a movie. You didn't really yeah. have a sense when it when it existed. You know, uh, did, isn't? That, do you ever think about that? That we 
you know, I think that from the time I got to California till now is 35 years. From the time I watched those movies to when they were made, let's say Bride of Frankenstein was made in 1935, and it was mm -hmm. only 35 years later that at six or seven years old, I was taking all that information in and really, really clocking those are actors. That's the same guy. Okay. That guy is also the guy who plays Dr. Frankenstein in that movie. And, you know, I started realizing they were actors. You know what I mean? Do yeah. you have any experience like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it was very different in the UK. I mean, I didn't get to see these things until I was in my late teens. Oh, because, yeah, because they weren't shown on TV. Um, it wasn't until the 70s that they were shown late night on TV. And as far as seeing horror in the cinema, we, we just weren't allowed. Uh, when I was growing up, you had to be 21 before you could see an X-rated movie. That's right. And I remember in like Peter Gifford's great book, you know, the pictorial history of horror movies, you'd see that like, you know, the Christopher Lee Dracula would have X-rated. And, you know, you'd think, do they have a different version than we have? Because, you know, I don't see any naughty stuff in ours. But yeah, you guys had that weird rating system. So you had to be 21? I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. You had, we had to be 21. And then I think, I mean, kind of in like this, I can't even remember if it, yeah, it'd probably been the early 70s, they dropped it down to 18. Uh, around about the same time, they gave the vote to 18-year-olds. They kind of said, okay, this is the age of majority. So we didn't get, you know, so our cultural experience of these was very different to you guys because these weren't, weren't kid things for children. Having said all that, I mean, you know, part of my experience was I'd see, I knew about them. I'd seen the books. I think you mentioned Dennis Gifford book, Pictorial oh, History. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I have it on my bookshelf down here now. That was my, ex you know, that was my go-to experience of them. And the Aurora... Famous monsters. As a model. I just, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to tell you that. So on my bookshelf in the other room, I have four copies of the book, Dennis Gifford's book. I have one copy that was mine. No one's allowed to touch that but me. I have one copy that is completely mint, 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 sealed in plastic so that if there's a nuclear war and the, the house is buried under rubble, they can pull that out and go, I see that this civilization deserved monsters. And then I have a, a copy that I let my friends read, um, which isn't mine, because they're not allowed to touch mine, and it's not the sealed one. So they have that. And then each of my children had a copy uh, when they were growing up. So one of them made it into this house, and one is must still be in the house that they live in. So uh, that, was, it was, that was the Bible for all of us. And somebody, somebody's writing a book, and they were telling me about how they felt like they want to write the book. They don't feel like they're, a, you know, they're up to snuff as a writer, but they have a lot of knowledge. And 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 I said, pictorial history horror movies, yeah, yeah. Have you ever read it? No, right. You just looked at the pictures. Like I found that book when I was seven. That was the that was the first book I bought myself. The second one was the other one with Christopher Lee. The but I bought it myself, four ninety five. That was my money. So nobody, like, I looked at it all the time. Anyway, so that's the joke is we all own it. Have any of us read it? Dennis yeah. Gifford might be the greatest mind ever, but we don't know. We just like the pictures he chose. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's a very interesting prose style if you ever do get to read it. It's just like, and it's oh, some it of his views are very interesting. Like, yeah, I don't agree with that entirely. But oh, interesting. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's been coming out lately. Every movie is about they. they there's a lot. This has been a big thing in the last twenty years. Uh, with great respect to the artists who come, the authors who come to these conclusions, but they're they're reading into movies, modern ideologies, which they would not have culturally experienced yet to have made Bride of Frankenstein only about like homosexuality or something, no matter what James Whale was, you, you, the cultural, you just wouldn't have been there then. Culture wasn't there then. Right. So I think it's weird when they overlay modern ideas into old horror and they're, they're, they credit people with, like a super intelligence that they wouldn't have had. Also, they don't have any understanding of the studio system that would have never allowed such things. Yeah. Oh, you were, somebody would have noticed it. Yeah. 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 You certainly can't be explicit. Okay, cool. Well, it's great to find another Dennis Gifford fan. Uh, that's always cool. Excellent. So I would, moving on to your acting career, do you come from an acting family? <laughs> I don't, that struck me as so funny. I come from a family that acts like they love me. I'm not really sure. Uh, my, no. In fact, you know, when I started doing this, I mean, my father was like, Elaine, Elaine, is a kid mentally handicapped? What's the matter with this kid? Like, they didn't have any understanding because there was no entertainer in our family ever. Funny. Once I broke through, uh, my brother is a musician. My other brother's a musician. Uh, my mom started doing plays uh, in back in the eighties. Uh, she was then she directed a play. Like all of this n didn't exist, and then one day it existed uh, in in my direct family. Mm -hmm. And now you know my daughter just directed a movie with me and wrote it. You know, like now it's going on. But there was. No Oh, and, and, and uh, you know, a very interesting, like, I was so sure that I would be on TV from about six years old. I would say, well, you know, when I'm on TV, I'll, when I'm on TV, I thought it, but I thought it. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I was blessed with some kind of foreknowledge of what was coming. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and, and, you know, I'd be curious to know if it was like, how obsessed I was with makeup. I made myself up. Once I realized Boris Karloff was Boris Karloff and all those movies, and he had all those different looks. And so, so too Lugosi, so too Lon Chaney. I started, you know, putting the makeup on and I have the makeup magazine and I would call famous monsters magazine for anything makeup. So the fact that at this point in my life, I do these movies and TV show, whatever I do. And I get to have this transformative thing. Like I, I think, was I, how did, I think what I'm saying is I think we all know what's coming, but none of us are, you know, we're not, we just don't have the, the heart to follow through. But all that stuff was so important to me as a kid and that I get to do it all as an adult is great. Mm. You, you know what I mean? So yeah. I credit, you know, are you, are you a, I'm a, I did a lot of theater then also from the time I was, once I decided I was going to be an actor. I went to the theater and did 40 plays in whatever, six years. Yeah. And then I moved to Hollywood and I still do. I have a theater company. We started here. I mean, I still do theater, but I always knew I would be on television and in movies. I, and I'm not a theater. I'm not like, 
uh, you know, those guys are like, well, when I did Henry four, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It was Henry five. I did. No, it was Henry four. I'm sorry. I get, to, I've done the entire canon. I get so, I was never that guy. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, to answer your question. Yes. I mean, I basically, I was never as clear. I don't think I ever really saw myself ending up in movies or doing television. It was stage, did amateur productions, similar sort of number. Yeah, up until the time I went to drama school, literally I was doing two or three productions every couple of months, simply because I was a young man interested in theatre, you know, where I lived in the county where I lived in you know, south of London. And young man interested in theatre. There weren't that many of us around. So yeah. I kept up being invited into other amateur societies and, you know, traveling around and, and so, so, so similar. But you kind of, your stepping stone to this was writing stand-up comedy. Is that right? Yeah, I did stand up. I mean, it was very, you, you wouldn't even believe it. When I was 12, I joined a circus. That's not a lie. I was in a circus. Uh, most kids run away to the circus. My mom drove me. Uh, she, you know, was the only way I could get there. But uh, there was this local originated circus that toured Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, part of New York. And we would go out every weekend and we would, we would take over a high school gymnasium. There was no menagerie, no animals, but it was, it was clowns and acrobats and, uh, you know, whatever you could get into a high school gymnasium, our circus did. It was really extraordinary. So I did that for two seasons, 12 and 13. I did impressions all the time as a child, like at 11 or 12, I started doing these talent shows, you know, like who dirty rat, you know, and it was all great old actors. You know, I think it's funny, you know, the great rich little, who is a, a touchstone of my life. You know, we went to see him in Vegas a few years back and the house was very small. And it's, it's like, because, you know, who's he going to do Ben Affleck? Hi, I'm Ben Affleck. Matt Damon. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. Like, you know, I like these actors, but they don't really have personalities like the old actors did, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I did impressions and then, and then theater and then stand up comedy and the stand up comedy was going pretty okay. And then to LA, very different time. Nick, when mm. I moved to LA 1984, you were a comedian or you were an actor. And that's how it was. It wasn't until about 1987 that they started pulling comedians and giving them TV shows. Before that, they gave actors TV shows, not comedians. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, so sure, Seinfeld, sure. Seinfeld changed everything, 87, 88, 89. And then every other show was you. If, if I had gone and done stand-up comedy, perhaps my trajectory would have been different. But the trajectory I've had and the experiences I've had, I would never ever, ever give up. And I can tell you three fourths of the roles that I've been blessed to do would never have been given to a comedian. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, yeah. The actor. Yeah. Nobody yeah. And, and so did you start, did you train formally when you got to Los Angeles? I, I, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a terrible example of this. No, um, I didn't train. I've, I've, the entirety of my acting training happened at the Pennsylvania Governor's School for the Arts in 1979 <clears throat> at 16 years old. I did five weeks in an acting program in the summer of 1979. So that's it. So um, everything else is God, God given and, and 
you know, my training has always been watching other actors. And I don't know if this is discussed as much as I think it should be, but great actors always do the great actors before them. If I'm playing a comic role, I steal from Jackie Gleason and I steal from Tony Randall. Uh, I steal from actors that I have watched like incessantly my whole life. And I think Tony Randall stole from, you know, Ronald Coleman. And I think Ronald Coleman stole from some guy we don't know because mm. nobody remembers actors past a generation. So everybody stole, you know, so that's my training. My training yeah. was watching movies and TV. And, right. And working archetypically, which I don't think acting coaches, uh, I don't think they, they understand that on TV you're you're hired to play a role that has been played 10 million times before and they don't need you to reinvent that role they just need you to fit within the context of even if you know you i'm going to uh law and order i'm not going to be you know they don't need brando they need a guy who can do law and order they need a guy who can say yes no well i don't know they need and if you watch law and order they're always the day players are always like you know, they're always like stacked. Well, you know, I, well, when I, when he came in here, yeah, he, he said he was going to kill me, but I didn't really believe him. They're always stacking things for some reason. Um, watch Law and Order. Uh, am I talking too much? I feel like. No, not at all. Not at all. No, people really. I feel like you're, you're 10 times more interesting than I am. <laughs> this is so not true. <laughs> and I think really people are tuning in to watch the both of us. Let's be honest. Okay. That's good. Two good looking uh, guys. With yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Spent so much time. I need to get my pointy. (laughs) I spent with the scissors today. Yeah, it drives me up the wall. (laughs) It's far too much time. But I know one of the first um, roles that you played, and this is your first major film, I think, is Cave Girl. You're talking. Cave Girl. Um, So, Cave Girl, I just had, you know, I find it's better to have visual aids. Uh, this this is so cave girl, look, cave girl. Let's. I think that says everything. Right. I was surprised when it was ignored for the Academy Awards that year. It was quite daunting. I thought we had a chance. So look, I come to LA. I'm an I'm an idiot. Let's be honest. I come from Pennsylvania, like every rube who comes, and. You know, I did not know how things work, but I was learning quickly. You know, back then, in in a mechanical era, uh, we went to a magazine here, and I and I'm I'm not trying to sound. Uh, do you, did you ever live here? Did you ever? Did, no, you know? no. I mean, I know. I I've got friends yeah. there, but yeah. But yeah, but it may have been different. So here mm. in Hollywood, in 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 New York, there was backstage. In Hollywood, there was a magazine called Dramalog, and Dramalog, you got. Thursday, except if you were smart, there was one newsstand in Hollywood that got it Wednesday night. So you ran to that newsstand Wednesday night. You got your drama log, you opened it up, and you submitted for everything. And it was all mechanical. Your picture, your resume, your note, dear sir, I would be very grateful to all the stuff you wasted all that time and energy. You had stationery that matched your resume, like you spent all this money. So to, to submit yourself, cost about $3. You had to have the picture and a picture cost $1.25 because it was a photo. It wasn't a litho. Yeah. You yeah. had to mail it. You had to get the envelope, the resume, the, all that. So you, you know, 
you submit for everything. So I submitted for this movie called The Crystal. <clears throat> and it was a high school, they needed a high school teenager. And at that point, I was uh, 21. But I was like, okay. So somehow I got in there. Um, and and I was being read for a secondary role. Uh, and it was uh, the very first movie audition of my life. And uh, I guess I did good at the first audition. And then the second, the callback, <clears throat> Nick, was like a community theater where all the actors were reading. We were all in the same room. And he, the guy, the director, would never direct in a movie, so he didn't know how to catch the movie, was say, okay, you read with you, you read with you. And I'd come up and I'd do my four lines, and then I'd sit back down. I'd come up and I'd do my four lines. And let's say there was 35, 40 people in the room, and that's not a lie. And I watched this a great-looking guy after a great-looking guy. The idea that they had was that the guy would be Christopher Reeve like awkward and goofy but then when his glasses came off he'd be like you know he'd be superman that was their idea uh but when you watched it this is just if actors are watching i i implore them to listen carefully to the hints god puts out in the world so i watched one actor after another i'm sure all nice people but none of the good-looking guys understood it was a comedy now i had watched by that point, two or three million movies. So I knew a comedy from a drama and uh, I didn't have to go to acting class to discern, right? So I'm watching and it's like confusing me. I'm, I'm relatively funny and I'm reading for this little part and these really good looking guys are not funny at all and they're getting reading for the lead. And then the director, David Oliver, who I will forever, ever, ever be grateful for, he said this, he goes, okay, we're done. Is uh, everybody everybody good? Everybody read for what they wanted to read for? And everybody says yes. And then they start, you know, grabbing their, their bags and they're getting ready to leave. And, and I raise my hand and I say, yeah. And I say, can I read for the lead? And he goes, okay. So then everybody has to stuff down and everybody has to sit back down because the a-hole, me, you know, asked, he asked a question and I answered it. He asked, I answered. So he goes, read the first scene. And I read the first scene and then he was like this, read the second scene. And I read the second scene and, you know, I looked up and he was like this and he goes, read the third scene. I read the third scene, you know, this is, he realized, I know he didn't have, his whole idea was wrong. If it's a great looking guy, that none of the, the bad comedy is ever going to play. So uh, that was that. Uh, I walked up to him and I said, Nick, I said, I, you know, I, I know everything about makeup. I, you know, I'm not a professional, but I, I just would, I'll play a caveman. I don't, I would really love to be in this movie. And he's such a good guy, David Oliver. Uh, he said, you're, you're going to be in this movie. I just have to figure out how. True. And then. A month later, he called and said, you got the lead. Wow. 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 What is the, what is, so you could go to a thousand acting classes and you could hear a thousand. And and I tell you, I'm writing a book now called the audition is the job and other truths that I've learned in the land of make-believe. I'm nearly done. And every acting coach, because I look them up all the time, they say, don't ask any questions. No, you don't bother them with questions. Well, that's stupid. Of course, you've got to say 
does this guy, it's reading like he just killed the guy. Did he really just kill the guy? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me read it that way as opposed to like, I didn't just kill the guy. Unless you're on TV, then they want you to act, say that you didn't kill the guy, but act like you did kill the guy. When in reality, if you watch anybody who kills a guy and they kill him and they go, I didn't kill him, they're not acting like they killed them because, you know, they don't want to go to the electric chair. So um, that's my cave girl story. Now, it seems ridiculous. Who cares? Cave girl. Who cares, Nick? It's a stupid movie, a teenage sex comedy, but it didn't have any teenagers in it. It was no sex and it wasn't funny. Now, I don't blame myself for that. I blame I blame uh, perhaps the editing. I don't want to throw that guy under the bus, but it, it does plot along, unfortunately. But the difference it made in my life was my buddy Chuck Williams, who's been my friend for 36 years almost, 35 years, he saw that movie in a $2 theater in Phoenix, came to California because uh, he was just, or Tucson, he was visiting his home, doesn't matter where it was, came home. Somebody said, what'd you do this weekend? He said, I saw this terrible movie, but the guy in it was really funny. And he just happened to be talking to a guy, one of the 12 people I knew in Hollywood, who said, I know him. That's my friend. So he put us in touch. Chucky was working for a manager. Chucky's enthusiasm for representing me helped. And then the manager, and that's how I got into River's Edge. I would have never, ever been in the level that they would have read me for River's Edge if I had never been in Cave Girl. And if I had never said, can I read for the lead, which made every difference in my life. So there's this version of Cave Girl that Code Red put out where we did a making of. And I thought, if someone else does a making of, they're going to say how terrible I was. So I thought, I'll do the making of, and I'll say how terrible I was, and I'll be way ahead of them. So the making of, if your, your readers could actually, if they type in Cave Girl, a second journey back in time, uh, they can find the making of. And the, the, I attest, if you had a Bible here, I would say it's 10 times funnier than the movie. Um, but I, I make one of myself implicitly. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you mentioned River's Edge, um, which I was watching earlier on today because I'd not seen it before. And wow, oh. that, that is not a comedy. Not a comedy. And that, I, and you, I mean, you're working with Keanu Reeves, Dennis Harper, Crispin Glover. Um, how, how, because that's how you got the part. How was the actual experience? Because you were working with Dennis Hopper a lot. A lot. I mean, now you have to understand Keanu and I, Keanu, me, we were, you know, all at the same level. Crispin higher because Back to the Future was such a big hit. Crispin was perhaps the month, the guy who got the money. I don't know. Dennis Hopper was a late addition to the cast. They had been reading Keith um, Carradine. I actually came in and read with the great Tim Carey. Do you remember T Timothy Carey from the Kubrick, like uh, the Kubrick World War One movie? I mean, yes, I know. Carey was a great, crazy person. So that was before Dennis. I, look, I I was way, I was way out of my league on that. But Tim Hunter is a great writer. Neil Jimenez wrote a great script. There were two great producers. And then, you know, we, to have, because everybody worked with Dennis for a day or two. I worked with Dennis for two weeks straight. Like we were together every night. We were together. And, and you know, he was Dennis. He was like, I look now, it's so funny. 
he was Gandalf. You know what I mean? He was the wise and old man who came in and he was the actor who was in all the movies and he's in Giant and he's in, you know, all of his movies. And I was in Cave Girl. He's in Apocalypse Now, which we were obsessed with at the time. That's Dennis Hopper. Well, I realize now Dennis, he was five years younger than I am right now when he walked onto that set. Like he wasn't old at all. He was 52, 53. He wasn't old. And, and we thought he was like the old man. Um, it was a great experience. I credit that performance really to the great script and Tim Hunter. Um, Cause I was out of my league and I needed a director who really kept me on track. Uh, and he, he definitely kept me on track. Um, Cause really, you, I, I mean, to me watching it, it is the gentle art of doing nothing. It is, it's your sheer bulk and size. I think is part of, you know, that, and the way he shoots it, it emphasizes there's you next to the naked cat and you are in most of the scenes where you just seem so large in comparison to everyone else. You're just purely intimidating. Well, we go back to, uh, he's going to think I'm crazy, but this is what I mean by you, you, you steal. So, you know, remember all the empathy you had for Karloff in Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, Thank God I was so versed in that movie to bring like that idea that this, this hulking killer could still seem sympathetic mm -hmm. because, you know, he had no feeling for, he had no empathy, right? Because uh, he didn't understand it because that's mm -hmm. the culture he lives in, you know, that movie is so interesting because it plays now like a very dark comedy uh, because people have seen it. We, they showed it uh, our friends at uh, the Portland film. Um, I'm sorry that I don't uh, Dennis Tread, my old buddy. He, they showed it there and uh, um, people were howling with laughter. But when that movie came out, one of the reviewers uh, made mention here in town that somebody stood up in the theater and said, how could you be watching this? And they stormed out of the theater because it was, you know, it was so hard to see back then. Now, this is what I was talking about earlier about the cultural, like, so remember when they showed Frankenstein, they had to put, you know, they Everett Sloan comes out, out of character and says, look, we're going to show you something that is, you know, beyond, you've not seen it before. You may... And he, he kind of makes excuses for it. And River's Edge, then, then, since you do, you know, if you can imagine 1986, what the world was like, the, the space shuttle exploded while we were shooting it, or it was a year after. And I remember that people were putting on the, like, there was great sadness in the world. It was dark. The world was darker. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And, and uh, to have shined a light on, those kind of kids hadn't really been done before. I mean, it was rebel without a cause was 30 years earlier, 32 years earlier. And, you know, river's edge. And, and the difference is if you watch rebel without a cause, if you watched it in 1986, you were like, that's an old movie with old ideas and old acting and old everything. You watch river's edge now, as you did earlier today, mm -hmm. it looks like today and it's 35 years old. Like yeah, yeah. If you go to Sunland where we shot it right now, those kids have the same hair. They're wearing the same clothes. They're driving the same old beater cars. 
That's what it looks like. Come visit and I'll take you up there. And you'll be like, this is unbelievable. It's like, it's not changed at all. Wow. Wow. And I was going to want to move us on slightly to. And I'm sorry that I'm, I'm so, I'm just, I, it's, it's nice to have an opportunity to think about these things. Um, Cause it's been many, you know, it's, I don't think about them all the time. I got so much other stuff on my mind, but no, no, thank you for sharing it. Cause I think, it's, I find it absolutely fascinating because I think the reason people might be laughing now is because, as you say, it looks modern, but the acting style is very different. I've stumbled across this, you know, Crispin Glover out, acting outrageously in this film, you know, the little clip. And I'm thinking, okay, so you're taking the performance entirely out of context yeah. and just showing it by itself. Yeah, we'd all look rubbish like that. But just it's a really impassioned you feel this guy is so on the edge he and all these kids are raging at the you know raging raging at the world they don't know what to do with themselves they're teenagers yeah and it's, but, it's yeah it was a, a very evocative uh, mm. moment in time and i think yeah. that's why people really responded to it and tim hunter made a great movie yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, kind of like around about the same time, a little later, you went on to do Matlock. In fact, you've done four different characters on Matlock, yeah. and Cliff Lewis did 55 episodes. What was yeah, you guys do now? See, here it's funny. Here I could go anywhere, and uh, everybody's grandmother was like, shit, quiet, Matlock's on, you know. And I don't, I, I doubt that that was how it was there. Uh, I don't yeah. know if they even screened it over here. Oh, I've seen clips of it. American, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had, remakes, we had Ironside, but I don't remember Matlock being screened over here. on Because we only had three channels. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You had BBC, yeah, one, two, and three. And, and it was mostly shows about cheese, if I remember. Uh, <laughs> that's what Monty Python always told me. Yeah, yeah. Shows about cheese. Yeah, um, yeah. So did you guys grow up with then, was there any, did they ever show the Andy Griffith show? Which was? No, I don't think, no, we had Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, from, okay. So the Andy Rhoda Griffith Burt. show is a staple of the American culture. And that's why there were a lot of shows like Murder, She Wrote and, and Diagnosis Murder. And they all had, I mean, Dick Van Dyke is also iconic. But uh, Dick Van Dyke in his show in the 60s, played a TV writer who was not like anybody's dad. Uh, he was a funny, great, intelligent, witty. It was all great. Andy Griffith played the guy that we all wanted to be our dad. And I don't, I'm, you know, maybe you guys always look to John Mills for that. He was always like this, like the solid father figure who, uh, you know, who had two great acting kids or whatever. But Andy Griffith was already an American icon when he went into Matlock and then Matlock like extended that for nine more seasons. So the strange thing, here's a strange story. So Andy Griffith uh, was uh, like a rock and tear and he, he made this, uh, this album called what it was, was football, which was hugely popular in the 19 early 1950s where he was essentially Hicks. They had, and then they, they get, little ball and they run down the field. Well, I had a big arm and everybody knows about, he drank his, it's always talking about the big arm. So he did that. Then he went to New York and then he got cast in 
the U.S. Steel Hour production of No Time for Sergeants, which was about uh, like this 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 guy from the from the sticks who goes into the army. It was based on an IR eleven book. So they made this this one hour TV, you know, this TV show, mm-hmm. and it was so popular that they made it a Broadway play, and then they made it a movie. But his real career started with No Time for Sergeants. To put it in context, mm, yeah, yeah. And in between the U.S. Steel Hour of No Time for Sergeants and the Broadway play, he Ilya Kazan cast him in A Face in the Crowd. If you haven't seen it, it's as riveting today as it was then. It's about uh, a hick who becomes one of the most influential people in the United States through television, and then he starts trying to manipulate uh, politicians. Very interesting. So uh, here's the thing. So in October of 86, I do a production of No Time for Sergeants in which I play Will Stockdale. And it's a rarely done play. It's a very long play, but it's hilarious for three hours. But Will Stockdale goes out and he talks to the people. And I'm sure that was based on his ability, you know, so throughout the play, he's telling the audience jokes and things. Anyway, I just did the play. So that's in October. In April, I find myself standing in front of Andy Griffith, American icon. They bring me in and I say, they say, Dan, this is Andy Griffith. And I I literally say, Nick, (laughs) and, you know, he's like, I think he's having a seizure. No, he didn't say that. But then I said, Nick, I said, I just did no time for sergeants. And he goes, you did. Who'd you play? I said, Will Stockdale. You play Will Stockdale. He played Will Stockdale. Well, from that point on, I had his attention. And then we did this scene. I only had one scene with him, one scene in the episode. And then the next day, we're standing around craft service, which for those watching is, you know, where actors go to get fat while they're working. And um, and the director comes over to me and he goes, I don't know what you did to the old man yesterday, but he he's telling them that he wants you to be a series regular. And I'm like, really? Yeah, because it went so well. Well, I know what it was. I know um, this is another actor story if I have a moment to share. Sure. We had a scene, and in the rehearsal, you know, you mark the rehearsal, you mark it. And in the rehearsal, there's a running gag where he says, I have this pain. And in the rehearsal, uh, he pointed to like the bottom of his belly above his belt line. Uh, and, and, you know, and then I had to, you know, feel and go, well, I think it's this. Well, while we were shooting the master where he pointed was below his belt line. So I was playing a doctor. So I was like, and I reached over and I pulled his belt back and I shoved my hand back to where he pointed, you know, and he, you know, did his thing. And then, and then that was that we did. Well, I can tell you, that's what it was. He was like, I, I have an actor. He tested me. And I, I you know, cause of, you know, someone would have been afraid. Don't, you know, touch the TV icons, you know, private parts. Well, I didn't touch his private parts, but I did, I did uh, do. So he tried to get me on the show. It didn't work. I played another character uh, for what they thought was going to be the last episode. And then they, they another network picked it up, which I don't know if that happens over there where BBC two goes, we're going to make an hour. Tames television says, I think they did that with Benny Hill. Then they, 
switches yeah, something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who, it happens who, occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, who produced it. So uh anyway, the end of the story is when he became the producer of the show, he said, Now get me Danny Roebuck and Bryn Thayer as well. So that's how we both ended up on Matlock for seasons. Wow. 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 Because because it was his wish. Wow. Wow. I love it when people are so supportive of each other like that. And it's always good to hear that people. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a blessing when, when people also uh, have a follow through. And I, I think, you know, in Hollywood and I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm, I, I wish I knew more about the system there, but in Hollywood, a lot of people say, we're going to do that. And then they never do that. Mm-hmm. And as an actor, maybe they'll say, Ah, uh, we're not going to use you, uh, but we know we we signed a contract. But can we get out of the contract? We'll use you next next episode, and then they never call. You know, so there's always some weird manipulation of yeah, your yeah, your yeah. hope uh, for uh, an experience that sometimes never comes to fruition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving on from that, I know another iconic film that you were in, or a film in this case was The Fugitive. Oh wow! Yeah. And in fact, Fugitive and U.S. Marshals. Uh, did that come out of the Matlock, or was that just another casting? No, it was another casting. Odd too. Uh, it was. I was only in it. it, it you know, God is good, Nick. Uh, I was in. Uh, I was on a hiatus in the first season. I did ten episodes, and another actor did ten. The actor that I was essentially replacing, um, uh, Clarence Gilliard, I, but it was good for him. He ended up on Walker, Texas Ranger for nine years. So greatest. <laughs> happened to him was he got to do matlock then he didn't but um so we had 10 shows 10 shows and i would do three then go home for three and it was like that so one time i was home and uh, i went to audition for the fugitive and i auditioned for the fugitive a year before to actually play the one-armed man when it was an alec baldwin project oh uh that was the first guy they were trying to get in the first iteration of it and uh that never came came off. So I went back in to be one of the guys. And uh, it was, you know, I was waiting and it was taking a long time. And then I, I don't know, you know, you look back and you think as an actor, well, like, what was I doing that day? What was so damn important? But, uh, you know, I went, I said, well, how are we doing all this? Because I've been here about an hour and the casting director, oh, Dan, uh, I, this is going to just bear with me one more second. You're next in. So right before the guy comes out, I get up and then someone goes, oh, Andy, Andy Davis, Andy, uh, Harrison's on the phone for you. And he goes, oh, okay. So he comes out and goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he goes to another office, door closes, 10, 20, 30 minutes. Like now I'm there an hour and a half. Again, where did I have to be? What if I would have left? Idiot, 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 idiot. So he comes out, he goes in the other room, Dan, please come in. I go in, he goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, um, I apologize. I just had to take that call. And I said, Hey, Andy, if Harrison Ford had called me, I would have made you wait a half hour. And I, that may be what got me cast. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, what was the, uh, so what was the experience of actually working on the film itself? It was so great. Do you know, uh, it was, it, it was designed to be shot sequentially, not chronologically, meaning that, because Harrison had a beard that he had to shave and his hair had to be recolored. So the, that's the only time I've ever been on a movie where they did that. Well, a tragedy occurred that I'd never come across before. 
I was doing my last few episodes that season of Matlock. They started shooting in in Chicago. They were in Chicago, North Carolina, where all the train stuff was, and then back to Chicago for the rest of the movie. And um, well, I was working in my side of North Carolina, and they were in Chicago. Uh, Richard Jordan, who was playing the villain, a great, great actor, suffered, uh, I think, a brain aneurysm, and I believe died while they were shooting the movie. Uh, so everything got postponed a few weeks. And uh, so when we finally got there, then we were back in chronological order. But if you watch The Fugitive, you know, when they put Jeroen Corbet back in the, into the movie, they had to reshoot sequences where he was replacing Richard Jordan. Um, I, so, I mean, terrible. And Jordan's a great guy. Jeroen Corbet was great too, but mm. I would have liked to have worked with Richard Jordan. Um, I was a fan of his. Right. Um, so, once we got to the movie, people were, uh, it was finally like, you know, it was finally going again because mm. uh, her sequence had to be like shut down and uh, it was finally going again. And uh, everybody was excited to be there. It was freezing. We were in North Carolina. Uh, biggest regret of my, my entire career. Biggest regret is only this. They called us one night to see the train crash at two o'clock in the morning. So we all came out, we got in the van and we all went out there and we stood, you know, and they never crashed the train. They're going to do it tomorrow. So we all went home and they said, are oh, you going to come tonight? And every actor was like, nah, I'll see it in the movie. And then I saw it in the movie. And I was like, what an idiot that I didn't go. Cause you could have watched from the road above. You could have watched the entire thing. Cause it was this walk down to the site where the trains were. Wow. I, cause honestly I was watching that again, just looking at it earlier, I've seen the film a few times and I was watching that sequence thinking, Oh, did they do this in models or did they do this live? Or cause that's an extraordinary sequence. Yeah. And it's, there's one, uh, no, there's two miniature shots. There's, they're not even a second and a half long. And I only know because I, you know, that's yeah. another thing I read about all that stuff. Right, um, right, right, right. But they're imperceptible. Two miniature shots. Right. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, it was live. Yeah, they had a, a fiberglass train and a fiber or a train and a fiberglass bus. And they put the bus and they ran the train bam, into that bus and pushed it down the track and uh, and then jumped, jumped the track. I mean, <sighs> crazy. Wow. Wow. Like crazy. Uh, how did, how, how did they do it? Uh, so that was great. And, and, you know, I'm of an age, I'm 57 now, mm -hmm. right? So Star Wars came out when I was 13 and then Indiana Jones came out when I was 18. So as far as I was concerned, Harrison Ford was my actor. He was my actor. He, you know, he was making movies only for me because wherever I was emotionally was when those movies came out. So Harrison's another guy that it's hard. It's hard sometimes. I mean, have you ever had this experience where you meet an actor that you're so blown away by that you can't really communicate well? Who is that for you? I'm just curious. <laughs> only because, and this wasn't professionally, only because... I wasn't expecting it. And that's when I, it was a young actor called Orlando Bloom, 
who oh, was in the Lord of the Rings movies. And I was literally, I was standing in a cafe at the bar and this good looking young man smiled at me and I'm going, why are you smiling at me? You're being overly friendly. Stop being overly friendly. And then I looked at him and I thought, oh, oh my God, you're a lad. I just like, complete idiot you know, this is me in my 40s i i will get starstruck so <laughs> you know it's what i think that look i think that there's something about that to to admit i'm often like people i see people have that same thing with me sometimes like ah, 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 and i'm like oh, yeah. me. i ain't andy griffith you don't have to you don't have to be, be like that with me um, you know the actor, the English actor I would have loved to have met, Leonard Rossiter. Uh, I, the rise and fall and rise of Reginald Perrin is perhaps one of the greatest things I've ever seen on television. I love that guy. And I'm immediately getting goosebumps because the one performance I never saw and would love to have seen him do, he did Arturo Ui in The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. Did he originated there? In, yeah, in- he, yeah, he he must have because I. And the only reason I know that is because on the copy of the play, the Faber edition, he's on the front cover oh, with a little moustache, and, what and I just that? think oh, he would have been extraordinary because yeah. an amazing actor, amazing actor. I um, very close to how I want to go. Died at intermission. They were doing loot, I think. Uh, if I remember correctly, and he 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 died in the intermission. I'm trying to die on stage. I want to give the audience that one last. You know, <laughs> yeah, so I believe I'm going to act till I can't because I want people to go. And then the guy died. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Molière, La Malade, Imaginaire. That is the classic way to absolutely take your final curtain. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. There are a couple that we're, we're getting on for time. I need to concentrate on. I'm sorry. I, Nick, I, 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 I'm sorry. I'd like to tell these stories. And I'm sorry if I'm boring. I no, you're not boring me in this light. No, no, I'm conscious about you probably have got other things to do. But I'm very, really... very busy here. Very busy here. <laughs> well, that... Um, final destination. Great. Oh, great. Now, I have to say, I watched again, because I just, you know, we, we were late confirming this and wasn't quite sure who I was going to be interviewing this week and so on. So I, I was juggling all the all my research. And I wrote, oh, just, we, I've not watched it in years. And I thought, oh, he's that guy. Because yeah. I remembered your performance because I, re- I remember going to see this horror film and then being fascinated by one of the actors playing one of the FBI guys and thinking, yeah, this is, here are all these teenagers dealing with this really, really weird supernatural event. And, you know, that's mind-blowing enough. What would you do if, you, you know, because we all have this fear of flying, what would you do in that situation? But here's the guy who's actually playing the man, actually with a very human approach to it. And I thought, it's you, Dan, it's you. That's so sweet. That's honestly from my heart, because how, again, how did that come about? Uh, you know, just, you know, begging for the job, like usual, going in a lot of, and they were reading everybody. I can tell you that day, uh, there were a lot of familiar faces, uh, lifers, I, I call them, people like me, just been around for forever. Good, all good actors. Um, uh, so those guys, uh, 
when I walked into their office, the directors, um, well, the directors, producers, I walked in their office and they had models of Frankenstein, Dracula. I was like, oh, these are the Bill. You got the Billikins. Who painted the, like, they, and they're like, you know what these are? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I have those too. So when you watch, it's very funny. They could have they could have cast any actor. When you watch their their commentary, when I come on, they go, "Oh yeah, Dan Roman. He was the only guy who knew all the names in the movie were from old horror movies. So we thought we needed to cast him." Like again, normally I like to go in as the guy, but sometimes they want to talk, and the purpose is, you know, they're going to spend nine weeks with you, and they'd like to, you know, gauge your. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to offend your, your asshole ability. You know, they want to make sure you're not some big douche that, you know, they're going to regret giving the opportunity to. And um, so we, I mean, we just had a nice conversation. I really did like, I had Roger Genver Smith was uh, the other guy. And I, you know, I was kind of trying to play in normal and humorous and Roger was his, his choice was to be a little like off putting. Um, and so I think it, I think it, it worked uh, good or maybe that's how he was directed. I don't know, but I had a, I had a wonderful time on that movie uh, and was very proud to be in it. Uh, felt bad that Devin Sawa had uh, issues after that. I think we could have all been in two and three because they would have kept following his story. But at some point someone decided, eh, let's just make a new story. I mm. remember I was doing, um, the TV movie about Mork and Mindy where I was playing Gary Marshall. And I walk, you know, we all stay in the Sutton place in, in Vancouver. And I walk out of my room, you know, to get the, the van at whatever, six o'clock in the morning. And, and James walked, uh, James, the director, he walks out of another room and then Art, the producer. And then they're all, and we're all walking to the thing, just like we did, you know, 10 years earlier on final Desert. I'm like, are you guys doing another Final Destination movie without me? I don't believe this. You never wanted to, you know. So I was. <laughs> but uh, those are good guys, great writers, great directors, mm -hmm. great people. Um, uh, you know, I, it's funny to me. Do you do you find this that you know a movie to other people is an entertainment, but a movie you're in is is a photo album of you. Mm -hmm. And your friends, yeah. And oh, that I, yeah. That's but I remember that day. I remember that. It doesn't matter that you're playing someone else or you're wearing the makeup or whatever. Yeah, it's still a moment in time of yeah. your personal experience that is shared with everybody. It's mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I remember watching Hellraiser the, for the first time, seeing it in the in the cinema when it first came out, and then. For about the first 10 years of watching it after it first came out, not being able to see it as a film, but literally just being able to remember the experiences of actually making this movie. And it, it, it took me a long time to be able to kind of turn that around. Um, one thing I do want to ask, because fans I'm sure would kill me if I didn't, and there's two directors, genre directors, very different styles, very different films, and I'm not going to ask you to choose favourites at all. But Don Coscarelli, uh, Baba Hotep, John Dies at the End, and uh, Phantasm, uh, Ravenger, and so on. And then again, contrasting Rob Zombie, Devil's Rejects, and, and so on. You've worked with these great, 
genre directors. We've already established you're a big genre fan. Do you get that extra buzz just because you are working with these guys on the these genre these genre films? Or how yeah, do- I think I think so. But so look, I'm smiling because I think this is how extraordinary God's been to me. I I mean I watch Phantasm. You know, when it came out, I saw it. To think that one day I would have a sphere, like, a, you know, you know, like that you watch them and then I'm in the movie. You know what I mean? Like that's, I'm now in that story, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's extra- the same with, let's say, when I got killed by Michael Myers in Halloween 2, like, I'm, you know, I remember going to the boy theater to watch Halloween. And now that same guy, you know, character is coming to rip my head off or whatever. Like you, it's, I get, I'm so happy and I'm so grateful to both those guys for giving me these kinds of opportunities. And Rob is um, beyond that. He's Rob. The, the thing that connects the two of them is they are both extremely intelligent and extremely well-versed in movies, in the art of filmmaking. And they both, and I hope that somebody might say this about me one day, their interaction on the set is so um, great in that Don Coscarelli's carrying lights, and I'll say, Don, don't, don't we have someone to do that? He goes, we have me. You know, he's carrying the lights into the thing. Um, Rob Zombie, will walk, he'll, he'll go and he'll like, Give me, can I have some paint? And I'll go and repaint a wall the way that he wants to paint it. Um, they both have a great uh, interest and in, no fear in like making sure that their vision is complete. And because they both work independently, uh, they don't generally have studios telling them, not generally, Rob, you know, he did... Uh, he, he did uh, work for Weinstein and everything, but mm-hmm. I think they give him a bit of a free reign. They may lock him into a, a schedule and a budget, but then he gets to make his movies the way he wants, I feel. And Coscarelli mm-hmm. is just like he's a free agent. He does. He makes it in his time, in his schedule, the way he wants to make it. And I think that's why those movies that they make, I, to me, John dies in the end, I, is an extraordinary movie. And he always, Don Coscarelli feels terrible. Now, isn't that funny? You know, I like to wear the makeup and everything. Um, you know, he's like, I'm sorry. I, you know, he gave me that part where I wore it. And he goes, I'm so sorry that I did that because nobody can see you're such a great actor. And I was like, you know, no, no, Roddy McDowell. You know, I mean, he was in four Planet of the Apes movies in a series. And he's still, and, and then I thought, wait, but it's Roddy McDowell's voice. And then I came up, whatever that weird voice was that I came up with. That the character speaks in. I mean, Don just loved that. And I don't even know what the heck it was. Um, I just love both those guys. And I love them both as artists. I love them both as people. Uh, and I, I, uh, Rob's got something really extraordinary that we've postponed, or not we've, they've postponed twice that hopefully we'll get to next year. Um, we're supposed to get back to it in April. Um, but uh, it's going to be a, a great 
fun surprise from Rob Zombie. And I, that's, that's as much as I can say about it, but it's going to be great. And right. I think we're going to love it. Right. It's, it's uh, I, years ago, we wrote um, Dwayne Whitaker and I, Dwayne Whitaker's in Halloween movie, Pulp Fiction. He's Maynard in Pulp Fiction. We wrote a, uh, and another guy, Sam Borowski, we wrote this uh, movie about Al Adamson, the filmmaker uh, who was killed uh, and buried in concrete here in the United States. Uh, he made movies like uh, Nurse Sherry and uh, Satan Sadists and uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein in the 60s, early 70s. And then he suffered this terrible end in the uh, in the 90s. Um, terrible. So uh, we made a movie because I, I have such or we wrote a movie. I have such a feeling that Rob is I know that Rob and. Don could they could they're they're working in genre, but Rob Zombie could could make a courtroom drama or Rob mm. Zombie could make a you know a war movie. I think I think he could do anything he wanted to do. Right. He's a real artist. A few things I want to touch on before we do the luggage and the crypt questions, which I like to end with. And that's particularly you uh, as a writer, director, producer. And I'd like to start with Getting Grace, which I'm not able to watch over here. I haven't been able to watch, but I love the trailer. The tra <laughs> I'll see if I can get deep. Well, we now it's, it's, I don't know why it's, I know we have uh, international. It's not streaming. It's not streaming over here. I haven't been able to work out how to, it only, I'll double check. I didn't think to try DVD because again, time period. Um, but I love the trailer for it. So getting grace, how do so, and just to be clear, your co-writer, director, producer, have I got that right? And an actor. An actor. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're in front of the camera as well. So, so that gets, only gets touchy. I once I fired myself once, but then, you know, the, the actor wasn't doing what the director wanted, but then the producer stepped in and said, we can't recast at this point in time. So I got the job back. So, it, you know, these things do happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, everyone says, what's harder, writing or, or or acting or directing? And it really is producing because producing is where you have to answer every single question, every single question. And I, I you, there's so many questions that come at you that I start adopting a rhythm. I'm like, uh, what is today? Tuesday. So Tuesday, three no's, two yeses. No, no, no. Yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes. You know. So, and 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 that's just how you stay sane. Um, sure. So I found this amazing script written by a guy named Jeff Lewis that was the perfect foundation for a story about a teenage girl who is sick who goes into a funeral home to find out technically what's going to happen after she dies, and she ends up teaching the funeral director how to celebrate life. Right. So uh, when Jeff and I rewrote it, uh, we overlaid uh, an element of faith to it that she's also really what she's wondering is what's next. You know, what she doesn't have anything to, that she believes in. So she goes to a minister and the funeral director and this guy who writes books about, um, uh, you know, like a Uri Geller type guy. Mm -hmm. And whatnot and she's on this journey uh of trying to find out what's what's coming next but in the meantime she brings all these disparate characters together and makes them a family um so it's really i think a sweet movie it's been so well received uh um we had a, a theatrical release here um 
And it's a real, it's one of those movies that, I mean, if I told you the emails I get, um, I would not only blush, but I would, it would make me happy and sad. So many mm-hmm. people suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many people suffer through this disease. And what this movie has, it appears given people is uh, an ability to let go of a lot of sadness they've been holding on to. Why? I don't know. It's a movie. You know what I mean? And I'm not an idiot. I didn't set out to do anything like that. That's not, you would, you, you're hubris. You would be such mm. a jerk if you were like, I'm going to make a movie and people are going to feel better about losing people or going through this. Well, the, the emails are extraordinary. The, the feedback is extraordinary. Everybody says that's just how it was, you know, because there's no punches pulled. The end is the end, you know, yeah. I don't want to get, you know, spoiler alert, but you know, you'd, you'd, you'd also be a jerk if you made this movie and you like had some special secret thing that happened at the end that um, was unrealistic. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 No. And very important. And more recently you've been working on lucky Louie, which I think yeah. you've been filming under lockdown. We did. We, uh, we, uh, I just described it the other day. It was like Moses and the Israelites getting to the, the Red Sea. I go, wait a minute, don't, hold on, don't panic. And then everything opened up. To say, to the, so this, I started recently with uh, my wife, Tammy, and Aaron McLean. We started a not-for-profit, and I, I do invite our horror fans to look it up. Uh, it's called A Channel of Peace. Dot org. Channelspeace.org is where you can find us. But the not-for-profit's called the Channel of Peace. And my hope with that is to just simply make faith-filled family entertainment. And I don't mean Christian entertainment. I mean, we're going to make movies that that will celebrate someone believing in a higher power. And, and through that higher power, they solve their problems. And I'm not, you know, this film, Lucky Louie, uh, maybe has, uh, takes place in a like a uh, Christ UCC church, but the next film, the Catholic film, the film after that might be a Jewish film. It doesn't really matter to me as long as my characters have a, a, a relationship or if they don't have a relationship, they earn a relationship with a higher power and move forward and solve problems. So lucky Louie, um, we're in lockdown, right? Just like they're just like the world. This mm-hmm. Movie that I was going to do with Mr. Zombie, which he likes me to call him Mr. Zombie. Um, the movie we're doing uh, was postponed, and I had this crazy idea. And I told my daughter this idea, who's a she's a film school graduate and a, and a very prolific writer, trying to break in. And I, and she was like, "Oh yeah." And I said, "Why don't you write it with me? And then why don't you direct it with me?" So we wrote Lucky Louie from this crazy kernel of an idea. We must have, it was before Father's Day, I pitched her. So after Father's Day, we started writing it. We were done by mid-July and then we got postponed and I said, let's go do it. So I went back to my hometown, which is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the area that I grew up in, which is very open, like we did with Getting Grace. When you see it, it is a love letter to that town, that area, Mm, because mm, it's mm. a beautiful place. And we set the story there. So we came in and we set the story again in that area. And, you know, I wrote it because we wrote it quickly. I wrote it for 
specific people I knew, and they were all available. One had to drop out uh, right at the end because he grabbed a TV show and said, I don't know. I feel terrible. What do I do? And I said, what do you do? You screw me over and you take the TV show. Cause I can't really, my, I, you know, because it's a not-for-profit, mm-hmm. I don't, I can't match a TV show's pay. Someone's got a responsibility to the family. Anyway, I said, I do the same thing. You don't worry about it. Um, if I, if I was given the choice. <laughs> uh, so we got to Pennsylvania. And so we, from Father's Day, we were already done shooting by Halloween. So that's in four months time, we, we went from conception to finish film, well, not finish film, finish filming. Um, and it was all because uh, there was this amazing, like unprecedented moment in time that we were lucky enough to hit because I knew I wanted to be done before the elections here in America. I knew no. that was important. I knew things were going to get crazy. And, you know, there was that lull before the fall spike of this or that or whatever. I don't whatever people believe, but I knew, I knew there would be, change a foot in, in, in governmental interference in everything yeah. and got it out of the way before governmental interference. And we partnered with a hospital uh, as a corporate sponsor. I'm, I'm a spokesman for them. They came aboard, they COVID tested uh, as many as uh, we could. And then we temperature checked and nobody got sick. And I mean, nobody, nobody. That's, that's a miracle. But yeah, I, I lucky, yeah, yeah. But I think meant to be. Honestly, Nick, it was meant to be. Mm. And uh, I invite people to to just look up what what it is. Go to channelspeace.org and you can find our films on there. Uh, and you know, we make them through the good, gracious, and help help of uh, others. Um, right. And it's a ta- in America. It's a tax deductible donation. Right. Um, and this is this is the other thing. To, to try to get into the position that Rob and Don Coscarelli are in. I See, I cast In Getting Grace. I found this kid. I literally pulled this kid out of a high school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and made her a movie star. If, if I had studio interference, they would have said, no, no, no. You've, you've got to cast an established actor. Well, yeah. she's a movie star. I mean, just like, just like Cave Girl made me a movie star. Uh, thank God she has getting great. She's a movie star. And then we just mm. start her next movie and yeah. she'll, she'll be seeing her for the rest of your life. I love giving these, these people opportunities uh, and giving, and when you do see getting grace and I, I have a secret way that I'll make sure you can see it. Okay. Um, when you see it, you'll think as an actor, you'll think if I told you half the cast was amateur, you'd be, I can't, there's no way I can tell who's an amateur right. Because right. what's the difference? There's like, it's a weird delineation. And I don't know if it's there. People think only the, the real actors are on the West End. No, the real actors are are everywhere. You know what I mean? You grew yeah. up in community theater. You said in the community theater. Yeah. It, there's people that I, I've seen do plays in high schools that I think, how is that guy not famous? In fact, yeah. I saw a kid in a high school production five years ago. And he wasn't available when we cast Getting Grace. He was available when we cast Lucky Louie. And I said to him, after the high school show, I said, if you walked off this stage and onto a Broadway stage, nobody would blink an eye. That's that's what a presence you have. Mm. Well, I captured that, and I just put it in my movie. Another actor I gave an opportunity to. 
So I love that part of it too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love giving opportunities to people who would never have them. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, this is extraordinary. Well, and brilliant. And I think this is just what the world needs. It always needs, you know, as you say, really working with community to build stuff using art, as you kind of alluded to earlier on, is, you know, just art is so important in processing, which makes a lack of government support and really realizing how many artists and actors and theater and so on. Anyway, I'm not going to go into my political rant right well, this no, moment. But, uh, but it's important, artist to artist, goatee to goatee. Mm. If we're not here, this is what, what made me saddest about COVID mm. was that, and I don't know if here it was on political ideologies that they should, artists everywhere stopped making art because mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. like, how can you make art? And I didn't understand. I was like, no, 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 no. We, there's workarounds. We got to be safe. We got to do this. But we should never, ever, ever stop. Yeah, yeah, art. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Once, once we don't put our opinions out there, we're not a mirror. You know, we have to be a yeah. mirror. And I don't want to be a COVID mirror. I want COVID gone. I want to be a, a mirror of the human spirit. Right, uh, right. That's what, that's what I really want to be. Right. I'm, of the human spirit right 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 the spirit lives so we got to live anyway there's my political diatribe sorry good on you um so i do want to end with my lovely section which i refer to as luggage in the crypt okay i really would like to know what you would take with you into the afterlife in terms of entertainment and uh, and we'll start with a film which film would you take with you um, can I, I'm not stalling. I'm just saying, I, I feel strongly that the afterlife with God uh, won't require any of these things, but just let's say maybe you don't believe in Santa Claus, but you still put out the cookies about, let's yeah. say this is kind of that. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm wrong. What will I take movies? What would I take? Amadeus. Ah, now there's a film which I I remember watching when it first came out and just going that opening sequence with Salieri and I can't remember the actor's name at the very beginning. Yeah, you treat yourself to this movie. It's it is it's perfection. You know, saving Ryan Schindler's list also perfection. Amadeus, Milos Forman. It's as good as any movie will ever be. Yeah. Yeah, no, ex- extraordinary thing. And what about a book? Uh, pictorial History of Horror Movies. Maybe I'll have a chance to read it. <laughs> well, they, we'll think of this as the journey on the way to your final destination. So it's just... Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's your journey on your way to your final destination. What about an album? Oh, um, oh, yeah, an album. I'm so... I'm so weird with music. I would take a very good recording of uh, of Ode to Joy, Beethoven's Night. I would find like the greatest recording of it that I could find, and then I would take that. Yes, yeah, I've sung that as part of a choir. And, oh, oh, and, I love and it. I've sung that as part of a choir at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Oh, that's an, I, you're giving me goosebumps. Yeah, what me too. That? Yeah, no, you've oh, just given, that, that must have been mind blowing. Yeah, it, it's yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm yeah, and I'm even my bald head is getting goosebumps now. Um, yeah, extraordinary experience. What about um, a favorite food or drink? 
Oh, uh, prime rib. I'd take prime rib. But I'd want the guys from Lowry's, the prime rib, to come. This is bad because I would require that uh, a few of the delivery service. Yeah. 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 I'd, I'd require that some of them came with. Uh, no offense, Lowry's, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need some of your chefs and your meat cutters to come with me to the afterlife. Right. Hey, that seems fair. And I can't make it myself. No, no, no. no. I don't know what the situation is going to be in my crypt. I don't know. Right, 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 right. What about a piece of visual art? Oh, um, well, you know, I would probably, you know, for for me, I might, I might feel compelled to take one of my my wax figures. Oh, wow. Uh, that I have, and I hopefully you can see them. It's hard; you can't see them. I, I, we can see them. And it's like, oh, and I can see creature in the back of the green. I've just seen Wolfman there. And creature, wow! I'm gonna have to I, take some of them. Um, visual art. I mean, I that's that that is that is art to me. Um, God the hell yeah! yeah. Well, you got somebody to talk. Inevitably, <laughs> I'd end up by talking to them. Yeah, you'd be like like uh, like Tom Hanks in in uh, in in Castaway. Yeah, I mean, like creature. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yes, I'm done with my prime rib. Are you done with your prime rib? All right, you don't want to eat it. I'll eat yours. I'll, you know, that's what I would be like. <laughs> Finally, what about a luxury? A luxury. Yeah, something that's just just makes life a little bit sweeter. I would hope that I could, I could, uh, you know, all I think of is people, but I guess we're not allowed to take people with us. We can do replicants. We can do <laughs> life, you know, I was, as good I was, as nothing's ever made me happier than my children and my wife. So right. was some way to have that experience of love and joy, uh, for eternity. Uh, I feel like there is that experience of love, yeah, 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 in my, yeah. In my system, but in in your crypt, if I could have just that feeling, the right. luxury, knowing I'm loved, right, perfect, absolutely perfect, uh, wonderful, Daniel. This has been extraordinary. Thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful stories with me. You're 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 very you're very kind. I I. I had all my props. I didn't bring them out. I want to show you. This guy makes these on Etsy. If you like uh, Rob Zombie, this is like me in Halloween too, because the character I play plays Frankenstein. And this is so people can, they can go find those Phoenix comics and toys. I had them to, to show you, but I, I don't know if you ever saw, like I got to be the devil in a Rob Zombie video. And Rob knows that I'm a man of faith. And, you know, Rob's like, hey, you want to play the devil? I was like, God. I hate the devil. I don't want to play that. Wait, can I play him like Paul Lynn? And he's like, yeah. So I'm like, I'm the devil. Ah so if you if you watch uh, Teenage Rock God, uh, you'll see the Paul Lynn devil. So I thought I'll be right. the devil. I can emasculate him. Right, 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 right. Daniel. You're a good guy, dude. You're a very great interviewer. Thank you for, and I'm, you know, again, if I'm too didactic, I apologize. But, uh, it, you know, like I'm having this kind of great time with a fellow thespian, and that's great to be able to talk on, on that kind of level with an interview because you don't normally get that, obviously. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is, uh, it's been absolute joy. And thank you so much for sharing your faith. 
with me and not being i think i thoroughly applaud that it's not my faith but i believe people with faith you know i yeah. absolutely and what you're trying to do in the community stuff and what you're building there is so important so important <laughs> Daniel, thank you very much. I'm going to end now. I'm going to let you get on with your day. I'm going to go have my pasta. Thank you again to Daniel Roebuck. Wow, what a lovely and talented man he is. And we could have spent another two hours at least and still not covered his entire career. Next week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by the lovely Lynn Griffin to discuss the highly seasonal Black Christmas and much, much more. Join me then. And in the meantime... Stay safe and wow. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm-hmm.